Ladies, gentlemen, after the wonderful drink and food yesterday night, two excellent speeches, one from Lisbon, the other from Dublin, and a standing ovation to, to whom? I, I do not really remember. Just to whom was it? We don't remember, but standing ovation was good too. Where are we? That's obvious where we are. We are under a blue sky, if not even, maybe, maybe paradise. But why? Very easy. About 17 years ago, in this very same room, was created the Florence Forum. Uh, what for? To see how we are going to build the internal market for energy. It was power, by the way. And, and we, we, as Europeans, were willing to do it since 1996, but we didn't know how to do it. The idea that we need rules to make a market work was not that popular, and even if popular, we didn't know how to do. So Florence Forum was born exactly in this room. Then, a little later, even 11 years ago, was born the Florence School. What for? Uh, <laughs> The national regulators for energy were pretty aware that their ultimate job was to build the European market. But they were national authorities, and they knew only national regulation, and everything they were doing was national only. So they did feel the lack of Europeanization of the building of the internal market. So they did decide to create their own school to self-Europeanize. That's wonderful. And by the way, it shows what is Europe. Huh? Europe is more a project and, and, and a change of path than, than the past. So they did create this school, and being there, this school did grow. And today, this school is not only energy, but also climate. Energy is there, and climate here. Well, OK. And then, what else? But what else? <laughs> The challenge we have today is much bigger than building a market. I will say building a market is mundane. We have markets on Earth since millenniums. The difficulty was for power, because the market for power is tricky, but we have markets since ages. So where is the challenge? The challenge is not to build a market which is a tool. The challenge is to deliver an outcome. What we have, the big challenge we have, is climate action. Energy transition, that's the challenges we have in Europe, but we have worldwide. And of course, we try, and we are trying to use markets to do it, but not necessarily only markets. We can use also regulation of cars, of boats, of planes, and many other tools. We also know that we have a tool being ETS. That's the challenge we have. That's the ultimate one. We still have to produce the corresponding policy. We are still at European level very shy into combining energy and climate tools, market tools and non-market tools. Let's say uh, pushing energy efficiency, we're having an uh, uh, efficient standard for, for engines and, and other devices. That's the challenge. Uh, we have um, a cap um, uh, being created for this challenge. Unfortunately, the cap is half the cap. It's energy union. Let's call it, since today, Energy and Climate Union. 
And uh, the purpose of the day today is to celebrate the 10th anniversary of ETS. It's not about the past, it's about the future in Europe, is the future for many other countries. And the challenge is to see how this future will, will come, combining all the tools we may have to, to succeed into the challenges of energy transition and uh, climate action. This said, you are at the European Institute, so it's not a surprise, the story of the Florence from the Florence School. We are an academic European institution. We have our own treaty. We are, of, of course, we, are, we have a small treaty vis-à-vis -vis, uh, the European Union one, but we are a European institution. That's why we are seeing so many European actions and, and um, European gathering. But we are academic only. We are European by heart, but, but we are only academic. Everything we do is because we are convinced. Uh, sometimes we are wrong, of course, but even when we are wrong, we are convinced that we were right and, and we look to improvements. This said, I hope I did say uh, most of it, and we will now get um, the Commissioner for Energy and Climate Action, Cagnette, telling us a, a sweet word for the opening. So, Cagnette, Mr. Cagnette, you are very welcome. I forget to tell you my name, but it has no importance. You see me, I'm so tall. Dear conference participants, the European Union Emissions Trading System, known by all as the EU ETS, turns 10 this year. It is the cornerstone of the European Union strategy to reduce emissions of greenhouse gases. With key reforms to the system being considered, this conference is well-timed and important. I would like to briefly touch upon three questions. What made the European Union ETS possible? How has the European Union ETS worked? What's the name for the EU ETS? So what made the EU ETS possible? The EU ETS is the world's first major carbon market, and it remains the biggest one with over three quarters of international carbon trading. I want to recall its very special nature. It is a market, but created for a policy purpose. And it guarantees that the policy objective is met, while leaving the actors in the market the flexibility how best to contribute. Thereby, it ensures that emissions are reduced at least cost. The current science and form of the emissions trading systems are the result of a gradual evolution of learning by experience and of strong support and involvement of all actors, many of whom I understand are present in Florence today. In that process, we have gone from the development of national allocation plans, followed by our harmonization of the rules at the European Union level and inclusion of additional sectors and greenhouse gases. Interested questions for the conference may be Looking back at the first 10 years, what are the key success factors that made each step in further integrating and expanding this market possible? Where did we change course along the way and why? These questions can, of course, be addressed from a more narrow perspective, but also from the bigger picture of the developments in Europe in the past 10 years. Where the need to tackle climate change and the coupling of emissions from economic growth stayed firm on the political agenda despite the changes economic circumstances. Let's now have a quick look at how the European Union ETS has worked. Here, in my view, it is a matter of perspective whether you see the glass as being half full or half empty. On the one hand, 
the recently published data on 2014 emissions show that the ETS is again on target in delivering substantial emission reductions. Europe is well on track for the 20% target in 2020, and the ETS has played a big part in this. Looking over the last 10 years, emissions have gone down while the European economy has grown. At the same time, the impact of the economic crisis that started in 2008 resulted in the build-up of surplus of allowances, which grew over the years to reach some 2 billion allowances in 2012. This growing market imbalance, along with a weak price signal, started the public debate on policy options to solve the problems the European Union ETS was experiencing. The system was not sufficiently driving investments in low-carbon technologies, and new national policies risked undermining the level playing field in Europe. The first step to meet this challenge was the short-term solution of postponing a certain amount of allowances to be auctioned, which has become well known as backloading. I know this was labeled by many as market interference, but we should not forget that the purpose of this market is to drive cost-efficient emission reductions also in the long term. Therefore, I'm happy that we have recently reached a political agreement on the structural measure to make the supply side of the system more flexible and resilient, namely the establishment of a market stability reserve. Like the overall ETS rules, the market stability reserve is based on clear rules and aims at regulatory certainty and predictability. As the legislative debate in Brussels concludes, I think this conference is a perfect setting for you as a group with a wide range of expertise, academic, regulatory, economic, and other perspectives to discuss where we now stand. What is your analysis of where we stand in terms of how the ETS is working? Is the glass now at least half, half full? What do the outcomes of the system so far tell us about the system mechanics and its strengths and weaknesses? This brings me to the final question. Away from the day-to-day -day discussion on the carbon price and the surplus, as well as headline targets, with the reform ETS, do we have the tools needed to put the European Union on track towards a low-carbon economy? In this context, let me quickly talk about what's next for the European Union ETS. Besides the market stability reserve, further changes to the ETS will be necessary to reflect the headline targets and the architecture of the climate and energy framework for 2030, agreed by European leaders in October 2014. As I promised at the start of my mandate, and now that the market stability reserve has been agreed, the Commission is working hard to put forward a proposal for the ETS before the summer break. That proposal will be based on the clear guidance of the European leaders, built on well-established cornerstones of the system as we have it today, adequate protection of sectors exposed to international competition, maintaining the incentives for further increasing efficiency through the benchmarks, targeted innovation support and support to modernize the energy sector. One thing is clear. The ETAs remains at the center of Europe's climate and energy package for the next decade and beyond. Of course, we all have our eyes on the Paris conference later this year, where we hope to agree a new international climate deal in the context of which all countries make ambitious commitments and progress can be tracked and reviewed. In that respect, I am also very pleased and encouraged that the European Union ETS has served as an example for other countries and regions to put in place carbon markets. Perhaps, in 10 years from now, the EU ETS will be one among many carbon markets which will ensure a low-carbon transition for all economies. We can have big hopes for a ten, our 10-year-old. 10
I wish you a productive and challenging conference and look forward to hearing what the outcome of the discussions will be. Thanks too much. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, here at UI and the Front School, we are using all um, 21st century communication tools. So we tweet more than 8,000 in the energy area. We podcast, we webinar, we online. We have the world's first online course for power regulation. It is a course taught at MIT by Ignacio Perez Ariaga, but being put online here at the European Institute. And today you are streamlined, which means that everybody can access what we are going to say. We expect 300 people following us all the day on, on this uh, communication tool. That's why if you want to say anything, you have to do what I'm doing to get the red light on your microphone. This way you will be uh, streamlined and, and the audience will follow what you say. It's very important because when you are not in the room, any interruption of the flow, it's painful for the, for the audience. It's not the same as being in the room. Eh? So not to push people to interrupt the, the, the communication, you have to take care uh, uh, to this. Now my, uh, my day is over, I will sleep uh, on my chair, and I will, I will do, yes, I know, I'm joking. Uh, I will do something to end it. I will give the floor to my own director, the director for applied research, applied studies at the European Institute. We are a leading institute for applied research in European affairs. Brigitte Lafan. Thank you very much, Jean-Michel, distinguished guests, dear colleagues. It's a great pleasure for me to welcome you to the Badia Fiesolana this morning. Uh, the Badia was constructed, its funding, its, its construction was funded by Cosimo the Elder. He hoped at the time that it would be a home to letter, excellent and lettered men. I'm very glad to say there are now some lettered women here uh, as well. Uh, this complex has also, it was the site where Charles V sequestered his troops during the siege of Florence. So this is a very ancient building and it has seen uh, much discussion on many of the big topics of, this, of the day. And for that reason, it's a very appropriate venue for this conference on looking back 10 years of EUTS. Uh, we're delighted to host it, to host it in collaboration with DG Climate. We're very appreciative of the support of Jost Elbecke, the Director General. Uh, the uh, Climate Policy Unit at the Florence School under Denny Ellerman engaged from the beginning in uh, evaluation of EUTS. Uh, and we will now, we also would, uh, we look forward to continuing, uh, to continuing this, this work. Uh, we're as, as relative, in terms of academic institutions, we're very small, but one of the things I've discovered since I came to Florence two years ago is that uh, Florence has tremendous convening power. People like Florence, and so we, we use this convening power that Cosimo the Elder uh, gave us a long, long time ago uh, to bring you all here today, but also, as Jean-Michel said, to, uh, to engage with the world beyond, uh, beyond the walls. It's a great and very personal pleasure for me to welcome Frank Convery. Frank is a dear colleague from University College Dublin. We sh sh has soldiered together there for many, many years. Uh, he was Heritage Trust Professor of Environmental Policy at UCD, and because of his presence 
presence in the university, we were the, certainly the leading Irish university in environmental policy. No one would go into the field because we were the best. Um, we were the best because we had Frank. Uh, Frank is now uh, the chief economist of the Environmental Defence Fund in New York. Uh, it's a, we thank him greatly for his presence and we look forward to hearing him. Frank, the floor is yours. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Bridget. It's lovely for University College Dublin to be uh, taking over the European system, and, it's, uh, it's, uh, and it's, uh, I'm proud of Bridget and her. Um, I would like to thank the uh, Florence School of uh, Regulation and Climate in the Schumann Center, uh, and DG Klima for organizing this. It's a terrific event. I do think uh, we need to be far more celebratory of our achievements than we are, and this is a step in that uh, direction. Um, our motto, I think, should be, and it comes from Dales, the Canadian economist who was the early intellectual developer of emissions trading, but he said, if it's feasible to establish a market to implement a policy, no policymaker can afford to be without one. And uh, to me, that is the essence of why we're here and what the power of our insight uh, is. Um, I think the program structure is terrific because we're talking about uh, what made it possible, how did it work, and uh, what next. So it's a great platform for interrogation. Um, I think in terms of what made it possible, obviously I'm not going to try to anticipate what the panel says, uh, but one thing that I think is important to flag is the importance of luck. Uh, <laughs> Daniel Kahneman, in his great uh, book, um, Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, has an equation. He says, success equals talent plus luck. Mm -hmm. And the second equation is, great success equals a little more talent and a lot of luck. <laughs> and uh, I think we've had some luck in the pilot period. The economy was growing in Europe and there was uh, evidence that you, you couldn't support the premise that trading was damaging the economy. Um, and uh, we got that kind of run of, 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 of outcome. Um, and then, of course, we've had horrible luck since 2008 with the economic recession and so on. I think it's important to recognize those two dimensions because being lucky means you should be humble about outcomes, but when you have horrible luck, it's important to understand the, that it's a powerful explanatory for things that aren't going as well as they might have. Um, the second kind of insight, I think, from what made it possible uh, is the importance of planning and strategy. Um, when um, Denny and I and Christian de Pertwee were doing our uh, book, um, we kind of were forced to interrogate the process through which this uh, scheme came into being. And uh, Peter Viss and many others were heavily involved in this, but the essence that comes through is just the careful thought and planning and uh, the kind of step-by-step -step approach that may essentially made it possible. Uh, Muhammad Ali 
observed that the fight is won or lost far away from the witnesses beyond the lines, in the gym and out on the road, long before the dance under those lights. And uh, that kind of thinking is uh, very, very evident in getting to where we are now. The third and final point I'd like to bring up, which is slightly chauvinistic, but is very appropriate for where we are, I think, is the value of academic research and the associated networks in moving an agenda forward. The academic world is incredibly contrary and difficult to, uh, uh, to, to manage. I love a, a quotation from a former colleague of mine at Duke University, Stanley Fish, and he spoke as follows about his role as a manager of academics at Duke University. He said, if one listens to academics, one might make the mistake of thinking they would like their complaints to be remedied. But in fact, the complaints of academics are their treasures. And were you to remove them, you would find either that they had been instantly replenished or that you were now their object. The reason that academics want and need their complaints is that it is important to them to feel oppressed. For in the psychic economy of the academy, oppression is a sign of virtue. So I think it's a very perceptive observation. Uh, and it's, uh, it means that the interface between the academic world and the policy world is quite, uh, quite challenging. But I think in the European development of the scheme, uh, I and many people in this room, Carlo Carraro and others, were involved in uh, these kind of networks where we tried to bring the academic world with the policy and business world and the NGO groups to broaden and deepen uh, mutual uh, understanding. So I think I, where we are now and looking ahead, I think it is important that that uh, kind of infrastructure and that kind of convening power that Bridget mentioned and the uh, ability to essentially have a pretty open uh, discussion on the choices uh, needs to, should continue as part of our kind of infrastructure in this area. And obviously the uh, school of regulation here and the program led by Javier I think could be and should be critical in that uh, regard. Uh, looking at to the future, um, I think uh, George mentioned it last night, but the 2030 uh, package that was agreed in October, um, it really is critical that that move towards uh, implementation because it is the essential framing for the revisions in the trading scheme that we're discussing today. Um, I also think that the rationale for intervention in the scheme, which is the subject of our meeting largely today, is very, very strong. The way I see it, and I think most of us probably see it at this point, is that if we don't do something, um, we will face the renationalization of climate uh, policy where member states start doing their own thing. And the uh, power of the single market and the whole European idea and ideal of maximizing the potential for minimizing costs and maximizing opportunity will be seriously diminished. 
So just letting things run along, I think uh, that's one big uh, cost. The other cost of inaction is uh, related to the weakening of support by key stakeholders for the whole idea. Um, and the third cost, which to me is, uh, is, is very, very significant, is that with very low prices, the funds available to support innovation, the NER 300 initiative we're in now, but uh, um, obviously uh, going forward with the new proposals, which I strongly support to continue the innovation drive, would be dramatically uh, weakened. Um, and our prospect really of uh, offering developing countries and other partners uh, to opportunities and so on would be diminished. So I think just on a normal benefit cost kind of algorithm, the logic of what is underway is, is very, very compelling and the costs of inaction could be very, or would be very, very high. Um, I like Horace's observation that a host is like a general. Calamities often reveal his genius and uh, we're looking really to the uh, European system generally and the member states and the Commission and the Parliament to reveal our collective genius and move this agenda forward. A final point, I suppose, in the context of the uh, Paris uh, upcoming COP and the, Europe, the UN process in general, um, at EDF, uh, we're certainly anxious to, uh, that an outcome of that framework is that parties be enabled to do much more than is called for in the, whatever the outcome is, um, and that the framing of subgroups of countries that can collaborate together to move an agenda more aggressive than the kind of minimum that comes out of that agreement, I think is really, really important. It's been observed many times that China, Europe, and the US account for over 50% of emissions. And if they can find a way to do more, uh, obviously the prospects of serious progress will be significantly enhanced. Um, and as we debate finally the uh, choices and how to proceed, <clears throat> I think we should keep in mind the value of simplicity. Uh, it is one of the huge merits of the scheme as it stands. We all are in favor of simplicity, of course, until it affects our own particular area, and then we're happy to complexify to meet our own little local needs and so on. Uh, one of the big strengths of the Commission and the European system has been to hold the line on that and to uh, keep coming back to what's good enough and understandable in a simple way. So uh, that's just a kind of a caution and it's a very hard, it's an easy principle to lay out, but of course it's extremely difficult in the real world to hold to it. But I do hope that we can keep that as an important strand. So I'll finish up now. Chairman, thank you very much. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be here. And I look forward with huge interest and enthusiasm to what happens. And I think I can speak for the Environmental Defense Fund uh, in saying that we, uh, on our part, 
we'll do whatever we can, however we can, to advance this uh, terrific uh, mission. So, Garmila Margaret, thank you. Thank you, thank you Frank, uh, for not just giving us an insight into how this system uh, developed and why, but also to put on the table from the beginning the challenges and the prospects for the future. And we now turn to the first session, which is the first question of this conference, what made the EU ETS possible? And that's always an important question to ask within the European Union because collective action at EU level is extremely difficult. 28 countries, a complex institutional structure, uh, lots of veto players, lots of veto points. So whenever this system achieves something, uh, and we always tend to think that whatever is achieved is suboptimal, what one should sometimes think about is why was it possible at all given uh, the constraints of a system that is multi-leveled. Within the political science literature, there's a lot of work on decision traps, and the EU is a classical case of a system replete with decision traps, but it's a system that constantly escapes those traps. And in order to understand that, and this is a very good case study, uh, we, have a very good, uh, we have a very good lineup today. I think we should also ask, why was it in Europe that the first pricing, carbon pricing mechanism evolved? It's proved difficult, if not impossible, anywhere else. And why was it that the EU didn't resort, in this case, to its default form of governance, which is regulation? In other words, it went for something else, for market mechanism. So this is a one, for students of public policy, not just climate policy, and for students of the European Union and decision-making within the EU, this is a wonderful case study to understand how this evolved, how was it framed, what, why did the idea win, uh, and then who delivered agreement. And I can think of no better panel than uh, the speakers we have this morning. They're all going to speak for five minutes. If they stray beyond that, I will, uh, I will indicate after five, uh, and I will certainly try to. Unfortunately, this is not the Council of Ministers where you can just cut off the mic. <laughs> I don't have the power of the chair in that sense. Uh, but uh, we, I look forward to the insights uh, from all of our speakers. We're going to begin with one of the entrepreneurs, the agents, uh, Peter Viss, who's now EU Visiting Fellow at St. Anthony's in Oxford, a wonderful place to be. Uh, uh, but, of course, someone who worked uh, intensively on this within the Commission. Peter, you have the floor. Thank you very much, Bridget, and thank you to everybody who's been organizing and responsible for this conference. Um, there is much I'd love to say about how and why the ETS is possible, but I can't do it uh, in five minutes. So I'm going to hone in on particular aspects. Um, more, I would think, of the political science than the nuts and bolts of how it was built up. Um, the first point I would make, and Frank did mention it yesterday evening. Um, the advent of the ETS has to be seen uh, in the light of the failure of Europe to agree a CO2 energy tax in the 1990s. Um, quite simply, ETS uh, was helped by the fact that it was not a tax. Um, UNICEF, uh, now called Business Europe, and several member states, including the one I know best, were 
opposed to taxation uh, powers being given to Brussels, uh, newer taxation powers, because there are some that have already been given, like on value-added tax and excise duties, but they didn't want more of it. Um, and ETS wasn't a tax. The second point uh, I would make is that as it wasn't a tax, there wasn't the need for unanimity. All of the member states didn't have to be in agreement. Uh, it could be decided by qualified majority voting in the council, which comprised of only 15 member states at the time. Um, that's not to say that actually in the event for the emissions trading directive, we did obtain unanimity in the end. Um, at least no member state voted against it, um, which I think is an interesting fact. But we didn't need it, which was crucial. Now, we did discuss within the Commission, I hope I'm not saying things out of turn, but you know, there was a debate whether or not it might have fallen under unanimity. Um, because auctioning is, looks very like a tax to some people if the government is auctioning. Um, and I think the debate isn't entirely silenced on it, but we maintained it wasn't a tax. And one of the characteristics of the ETS in its first manifestation that helped it not appear like a tax was free allocation. There was very little auctioning. Um, and what auctioning there was, was voluntary. So that helped keep it in the realm of environmental regulation and not a taxation at the European level. Um, and the third point I'd like to make is to look at the Kyoto Protocol. Of course, that was the enabling framework uh, which, within which we acted. Article 17 of that framework talks about parties may participate in emissions trading for the purposes of fulfilling their obligations, but at the time, certainly within the European Union, we weren't clear how on earth that might be done. Um, the Enlightenment came gradually following that uh, agreement. Now, what I want to just dwell on in that particular article of the Kyoto Protocol is not so much the fact that it says parties may engage in emissions trading, but rather that it adds a proviso that any such trading shall be supplemental to domestic actions. Now, I want to dwell on that because I think this supplementarity debate, which many people will have probably forgotten and new, new scholars will probably miss that there was an extensive debate on trying to define what supplementarity meant. And what I think the use of that was, I personally spent many wasted hours um, discussing that. Um, and there was an agreement reached within the European Union eventually, but I'm not sure anyone else agreed outside the European Union with it, but it, it didn't really matter because what it was, I, I think, looking back, was a kind of enabling topic in that people tried to position themselves and expended a lot of energy positioning themselves either for strict supplementarity or for looser supplementarity. Of course, the NGO community, the greener elements of governments and so on, wanted us to be strict, um, define it strictly, and the business community in general wanted it 
wide and soft and not very constraining. And I think what is interesting is that because we spent so much time arguing about supplementarity, we, it was almost then permeating everyone's subconsciousness that emissions trading must therefore be a good thing for industry. Uh, because simplistically speaking, they want to do it more and the NGOs want them to do it less. And so the premise that emissions trading was a good thing, I think went very deep and it was happening all the time that we wasted discussing supplementarity. So I think that actually this supplementarity discussion did serve as a very um, you know, helpful factor in looking back, in alleviating, if you like, business suspicion about emissions trading, which after all is environmental regulation of a sort. Um, and then there is, of course, the very compelling reason, the fourth reason why ETS happened is that it, it, is, it does make such very good sense um, economically. You never usually talk for long about ETS without mentioning the words cost-effectiveness. Um, and there we had very much been learning uh, from the US and its sulfur trading scheme, of whom several of the important actors are here present in the room. Um, and I thought that what we added to that, because quite honestly, you know, there wasn't much about cap and trade we could teach anyone, uh, we were learning. But I think what we did do, which had not been done before, was we managed to envision, envision a way of having an emissions trading scheme with allowances that was at the same time compatible with the Kyoto Protocol and the flexibility of, uh, that was allowed under that. Most specifically, the marrying of European Union allowances with assigned amount units uh, as of 2008 was very crucial uh, because on the one hand it was the companies who were making the decisions to trade or not to trade, not the governments. Um, to some extent governments devolved some of the mitigation decisions to companies and the only guarantee that they could have that what the companies then did was appropriate was that there was an automaticity of transferring assigned amount units so if an entity in the UK were to sell EU allowances assigned amount units would also disappear from the UK's account and go somewhere else uh, the, as a result you know the UK was losing control, which is actually why the governments agreed that there'd be quite substantive penalties, mm -hmm. which I think was also very important. The penalty, uh, harmonized penalty, hadn't actually been done before. Uh, so for me, the marrying of company-traded units with the compliance with the Kyoto obligations at government level was, I think, a neat um, iteration of cap and trade that we were able to contribute uh, into, the, into the international community policy making space. Um, I felt very lucky to be working on emissions trading so early because it was such a good idea um, and I think the idea was indeed the strength of the whole story. Um, I think it remains strong and it's perhaps the reason why ten years later we're still looking ahead confidently to the 
continuation and further strengthening of emissions trading in the European policy-making toolbox. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Peter. And now we move to John Showcroft uh, from the Global CCS Institute in Belgium, but with deep experience in the electri electricity industry. Thank you and good morning, everyone. Yes, I'm not speaking with my GCSI hat on. Uh, I'm speaking with a rather older one. Um, I suppose what I want to talk about is um, how did we persuade the European power industry to move away from a love of voluntary agreements with no penalties to a system that had penalties? Uh, and I am quoting from one company. Um, I must say that we always said voluntary agreements was an oxymoron. Um, if you make an agreement, it ceases to be voluntary. But nevertheless, um, when we came back from, it was actually the Buenos Aires COP when I first met Peter, um, we had a meeting of our climate change working group, which was then chaired by um, the director of environment of EDF, Jean-Pierre Bordier, who had studied the sulfur trading scheme. And he said, basically, um, well, what do we do now? Um, someone said, please, can we not write another position paper? Uh, and he said, well, Article 17 looks interesting. Why don't we explore what emissions trading means for the power industry? And then someone said, well, how do we do that? Uh, and um, a gentleman called Derek Baggs from the UK Electricity Association, who was A, a mathematician, and B, a keen follower of horses, said, well, why don't we go away for a weekend and sit round the table and trade and see how it works? Because I think one, of the two th one thing you, we need to bear in mind is that as far as the power industry was concerned, liberalisation a few years earlier had actually brought trading into, in, into, the, uh, into the consciousness of the industry. So it wasn't sort of a, a, a surprising thing to say. Well, we decided we'd be slightly more structured than going away for a weekend. And we decided to have a workshop. And at that workshop, we had BP, who, if you remember them, were running their internal emissions trading scheme, and um, Richard Baron from IEA, who I think is one of the leading people on ETS. And they explained how it worked. <clears throat> we gave them a nice Euroelectric lunch and sent them home, and then spent the afternoon saying, well, what do we do? We said, okay, we'll do a simulation. And we sat down and we wrote the rules of an emissions trading scheme for the power industry. Um, I think Jean-Yves will explain to you that there was only one difference between that and what was in the directive. And that's what, we didn't have a new entrance reserve. Um, so that afternoon, I went back to my office and wrote up the rules. And, and Jean-Yves and Jean-Pierre Bordier got on the tallies and wrote the rules. And we exchanged it. This was the days before Wi-Fi or anything, so it was quite a, a, an exercise. Uh, and then subsequently, um, we got a message from Jean-Pierre, which said, I've spoken to the IEA and... Jonathan Pershing and Richard Barron are willing to run the game. And then, and Parry Bors have got a spare slot, electronic slot, and we can do electronic trading. We then got some 16 power companies to create virtual companies. Um, there was no company who was prepared to put the whole of their plant 
in a simulation which may or may not work. Because, I mean, one of the things we wanted to see was whether actually we fell flat on our face or not. So we ran that over about two months, and we, we um, simulated the 2000, 2001 to 2012. Uh, and um, at the end of that, um, first of all, it worked. Most people actually complied. Uh, we discovered one very interesting thing was that if you have a cutoff point, there was no investment in the last year. People were just concerned with uh, getting there, and I think Jean-Yves will talk a bit more about the what we call the wall effect. Um, and the other thing that came out of that was the fact that um, uh, it was clearly the investment that was driving compliance, and the 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 price signal was merely making things much more efficient. Um, so we went round Brussels explaining this to everyone, and we had some interesting reactions, particularly from the what we now know and love as the energy intensive industry, who basically said, we know why you're doing this Euroelectric, this is just a way of pushing power prices up. Um, we, so we said, well, let's run another one, and you can join in. And that one, we had about 30-odd companies in it, and all the, the major sectors were in there, and we basically reran it. We added another five years onto it so that we got an idea of what happened if there was something after the end, if you see what I mean, because we were only simulating up to 2012. And we, tr we ran the thing three times, once with free allocation, once with benchmarking, and once with auctioning. There's some very interesting results if you go back and visit gets to and see what the impact of those three allocation methods, methods are on both the price of allowances and the price of electricity. Um, again, the same results came through. Um, we also tried, because if you remember at the time, there was a big debate as to whether it was going to be um, direct or, um, I've forgotten the word, um, yeah, no, 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 um, sorry, I've got the word in here. Um, yeah, whether we had absolute targets or specific targets, because if you remember, the, the industrial sector is very keen on, on, on specific targets, and uh, the funny thing we found was that none of them actually wanted to take those targets. They all wanted absolute targets in the simulation, and we actually had to persuade someone to take one, and we even modelled the UK gateway which we proved fairly consecutively that it didn't work. So with that, we actually had certainly the power sector pretty much comfortable with emissions trading. And out of that came at least two position papers. And I'll finish with the image of the then German chair of the Climate Change Working Group with our position paper on the directive. And he said, I now take off my German hat and put on my chairman's hat and declare this position paper adopted. So I'll leave it there. Thank you. Uh, Jean-Yves Cani from Electricité de France. Okay, thank you very much for inviting me to share our experience with Euroelectric uh, and with the power sector and this process of birth of EUETS. And I think that if I want to summarize that in some words before giving you some highlights I'd like to share with you, uh, the EUTS was made possible because 
there was, it was a collective discovery process on a new issue, uh, which after all was quite controversial at the time in EU and in all the member states. So I think the, this paradox made possible a really a, a very important learning process that made possible this instrument to come into force in EU. So I'd like to take the point of view now from, from the industry, from the power sector, and how we use this platform that John has described just previously uh, as a tool to learn uh, within the power sector, within the industry, and also to share with others. It turns out that in, in the last years, I've been working with people looking at, looking at things through organization theory, management theory, performativity of uh, economic sciences. And they have taken the GETS experience as, uh, as a test case in order to apply this theory. And it turns out that we have very interesting results. And th these, these papers that will be published in, uh, in the coming months show that this platform has played a strong role in, in capacity building at different levels. First of all, for the companies itself, when we start these first experiments, in fact, it has been a very interesting tool for building the issue within the companies. Uh, it turns out that in many companies, we had to organize ourselves in order to use this tool in the simulations on our virtual power plants and uh, mix. And it was a very interesting experience to meet people from the generation division, from the financial division, from the optimization division, in order to see how we should use uh, this tool if it comes into force one day. So these experiments have been quite useful within the powered sector itself. Uh, a second rule of this platform has been to extend the learning over the power sector with industry. The second experiment, which was with 40 actors in Europe, was quite big, was quite interesting, quite rich in terms of using the different instruments. And I think that industry also learned to use the instrument but also the financial actors. So it was a second, second level of capacity building. And then you had the third capacity building. It was a, a, this platform uh, played a role as a dialogue between the industry, the power sector, and the institutional um, uh, bodies like the EU Commission, the Parliament, and the member states. And I think that up to the end, all the learning that, that we got from these experiments have been quite useful. And I think that if you, going now uh, as my, my, third my third statement, if, if you look at, at, at this creativity that was running into the experience, I've, I've been surprised coming back to all what we've done uh, all the important features that we depicted in the simulation and uh, all the, the ideas that came together, the creativity of all the people in order to put forward some interesting features, like, for instance, the credit-based mechanisms, like the domestic project that came as an idea from one company, from NL, I remember, um, and, and also uh, the, uh, the, the way the experiments 
uh, have been depicted very important feature uh, th that play a role today in the discussion for, for the future, especially the wall effect that we discovered in the first simulations where, after all, people were using at the best the instruments and it comes out that there was no target after, after 2012. And then there was a lack of investment at the end. If we would have continued, I think we would have got a problem. So I think that this, this future, that we try to correct it in the second experience, uh, that didn't show up very uh, much improvement, by the way. And I think we highlighted that as an important feature. We need to get visibility on the long term, even if the regulation is set up at a, at a specific year, you need some visibility on what's, what's going on after. It's quite important. And I think all the debate we had recently in EU in order to try to correct many things in directive lies in the fact that if this visibility is, is, is done, then the actors can make right arbitrage between the short term and the long term. So I, I think it was a very important feature we discovered in the simulation and we highlighted in our results. We had also other creativity that couldn't be implemented in, in our simulations, like the interaction with other policies. But I, I found in my archives at least two proposals to make uh, in the simulation interaction with green certificates. I think if, if we should have done that, maybe we would have learned more in order for, for, for giving uh, insight in the EU regu regulation. So I think that, you know, the, uh, the, the way that the power sector has uh, involved very strongly in, this, uh, um, in the cr creation of this instrument, was, uh, I think, very important to build up the political debate after, after that. It has been very important for the power sector itself for designing their own strategy uh, when the directive came into force. Uh, and uh, also, we, uh, we, could, uh, we could show that it was possible to use really this instrument <laughs> as a way to uh, to drive the, um, uh, the uh, reduction of emissions that were set up in the EU regulation. So I think that uh, I will stop there and will respond to questions after all if there are. Thank you. Thank you very much. And now Bob Bradley, uh, Senior Policy Advisor, Ministry of For Foreign Affairs. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I should clarify at the outset that I'm a former senior advisor with the, with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and I think it goes without saying that I'm not speaking on behalf of the UAE here. Um, in fact, at the time of the passage of the, of the directive, I was working with the environmental community in, in Brussels. Um, and so I want to speak a little bit from, from that perspective. But um, I'm really, uh, first of all, most grateful to be involved in this event, but also um, struck by an incredible number of conflicting memories uh, now looking, uh, looking back on this. I spent much of my career since then failing to get similar uh, systems of similar ambition uh, implemented in, in other parts of the world. And um, one of the things I just want to talk about very briefly first is um, what made it necessary because Frank referred to um, the importance of luck um, and he's undoubtedly correct. Um, 
but luck has to be accompanied by that noble determination to charge ahead regardless of whether you really know what you're doing yet. And um, that, for most of us, I think, involved in that process um, was a big factor. Certainly, um, it was in my case. Um, the first question is what made it necessary, and, and Peter referred to the fact that you know, the, many of the same protagonists involved in, in putting together the ETS had spent the best part of a decade trying to get taxation onto, uh, onto the agenda at the EU level, um, which didn't work for quite specific political economy reasons within the EU. Many member states already had taxes of that kind. Um, so we were dealing not with um, a sort of blank slate ideal um, policy design, but rather with, with quite specific policy constraints. Um, that was reflected with the fact that there were a couple of consultants and think tanks that were, uh, were commissioned for reports beforehand and came back and said, of course you want to design an upstream system with, uh, with full auctioning, and the response was, well, that's a lovely thought, I'm going to pin it to my fridge, now here's your downstream system. Um, now, what made it possible, I don't want to harp on this point because it's been made before, but it can't be stressed enough that um, the leadership of Jos and his team in the commission is... I think the single most important factor which has frankly been missing in some of the other attempts we've had around the world. Um, without any disrespect to um, the Obama White House, for instance, um, having been very closely involved with the Waxman-Markey bill, um, there was not the same kind of engine, the advocate, the basher together of heads that uh, created a kind of common sense of direction around which people could cohere. And that was absolutely essential um, in the case of the EU ETS. For the environment community, it was a, quite a challenging policy change that happened over a fairly short period of time. For many in the environmental community, it had taken many, many years to get to, even to the idea that taxation was a reasonable way of, of addressing pollution. For many people, um, it represented simply a way of buying your, your way to a right to pollute, um, rather than being constrained by absolute levels of health uh, impact or what have you. Um, and that had become, as many things do in the environmental community, quite a theological divide. Um, emissions trading then suddenly represented another quick about turn. Suddenly, um, many people who had not really gotten on board with the idea of pricing in general were suddenly being asked to look at a system which is infinitely more complex, um, and as we've seen since in its implementation. And one of the things that was most critical in that was essentially the, um, the legitimization that was given to it by the Kyoto Protocol. Many in the environmental community were not sure they were crazy about pricing. They certainly weren't sure they were crazy about emissions trading, but they did want the Kyoto Protocols to, to succeed. And I think the commission was extremely skillful and thoughtful in the way it engaged with that community early on. Um, the, Kyoto Protocol, it's easy to forget, was largely an American-authored document, which is why it looks like the love child of the Montreal Protocol and the Clean Air Act. Um, but it was some, that, that feature of emissions trading was something that was, I think, seized on with, with great timing and caused um, really quite an accelerated debate within the environmental community, which got people on board in a way that um, I think would probably not have been possible without the sort of external deadlines that were um, applied by the need for the EU to, um, to be a champion of the Kyoto Protocol. The, the last point, um, and it's one that's, um, that's easy to forget somehow, sometimes, is that the emissions trading system was never a standalone policy. 
And it was critical, I think, to the success and the support of the system that it was always couched within a broader European climate change program. I think that's been immensely important for practical reasons because um, an emissions trading system, like other market-based mechanisms, is good at flushing out um, emission reduction possibilities where you didn't necessarily see them. That's what it's for. It's for discovery. Um, but of course, if we're going to deal with the climate change challenge, um, much as it's nice to find ways of getting rid of industrial gases or, um, or promoting better land use, it begins and ends with whether we're transforming the way we produce and consume energy. And it's a fact that that has still been driven over the last 10 years um, primarily by other policies um, within the European Climate Change Programme for which um, the ETS was an invaluable um, uh, accompaniment and maybe even a glue that helped pull, the, pull some of those things together. But the support that it, it got was very much about building the EU ETS within that broader framework of, of policies and measures. And um, the European Climate Change Programme, as it was, was an, was an immense undertaking. I mean, there were, there were probably, by the time we were done, there had been maybe 20 different working groups on everything from fluorinated gases to buildings, directives to, um, uh, to renewable energy and so forth. And all of those remained valuable, and all of them have been powerful complements to what has been achieved with the, with the ETS. Um, I'm... I'm incredibly honored and humbled to have played even a very, very small part um, in that. And, um, and I would like to thank everybody um, from the Commission and all of the other stakeholders involved for what is, I think, still the most successful political process in the climate change sphere that I've ever participated in. Thank you, Bob. And now, Evi Jensen from the Danish Climate Council. You have the floor. Thanks. Uh, I'll have to say that a lot of what I've uh, wanted to say have already been said by mainly Peter and Rob, but uh, I'll try and add a few things anyway. Um, I believe why I'm in this panel is probably because I was part of the Danish presidency uh, in 2002 when we first have an agreement in council on the EU ECS. As this is a celebration and a birthday and a reunion, I will take time anyway to again thank uh, the group in the Commission. And I think I would also name them uh, as not just just, but also Peter Wies and Peter Saffel and uh, Yvonne and Damien as the people who really made this possible and did a lot of the proposals, the text, the thinking, and all the intellectual uh, thinking that was needed to actually make this work. I remember sitting at uh, the Point de Quotidien uh, at Place Sablong with Damien and writing all the compromise proposals for council and trying to find a way to make sure that council could actually agree on this. Because the reason why this was possible was definitely a lot of balancing between the people who wanted a system and wanted to do something about climate change, but also the people who knew that they had to accept something coming and they wanted the cost of compliance to be as minimal as possible. And that balance did uh, very much form the first uh, version of the EU ETS. There was many things we would probably have wanted to do differently, uh, uh, but on the other hand, if you have a look at what we wanted to do differently and what has actually been changed now, I think we are very much getting there uh, as what was the wish uh, in the beginning. I think one of the things that made it possible was uh, that we did not 
auction all the allowances to begin with. We were many who would have liked to see that, but on the other hand, it doesn't really have a lot of environmental effect to auction. It's more an economic discussion, and uh, that was one of the things that was worth giving away to have a compromise in the first round to have an ETS, which could then be improved gradually afterwards. Uh, another thing was that you would have to compromise on uh, the national uh, and the EU level on uh, who decided what. And I think the national allocation plans were one of the things that made it politically possible in the first round of the EU ETS, where member states felt that they still did decide uh, who was getting what. After having done that once, I think they more or less realized that it was really nice to get rid of it. But uh, apart from that, it was definitely one of the political ways to make it possible in the beginning. Um, the whole uh, cost of compliance was also one of the things that uh, the intellectual understanding of an ETS was necessary to get especially the power sector to understand that this was maybe not a very expensive thing for the power sector. Maybe this was actually, even for a lot of the power producers, a beneficial economic uh, thing. And uh, having explained that to a lot of power producers before uh, the agreement in 2002, and uh, the power sector being a greater part of the ETS, I believe that that was also part of why power sector could then, uh, in the end, sign up to the EU ETS as it was. So uh, the realization that the minimal cost of compliance for what something that was needed to be done was probably the greater reason why uh, it was an, in the end politically a doable thing. And then uh, of course there's been a lot of uh, criti critics saying that the version of the ETS as it was in the beginning was probably not optimal. But if you look at the design of the ETS, I think it's worth saying that the, the market design was actually quite perfect to begin with. There was definitely things it couldn't deal with, but you got a system where you kept below a cap. You got a price on carbon, which has been impossible until then, and you lowered the cost of mitigation, and you actually got people trading. So in that sense, I would say that even the first version of the EU ETS was quite successful, but of course, uh, there have been some bumps during uh, the recession and uh, also maybe we have needed more politically ambitious targets to drive the price so as to be able to also fulfill the last uh, need of an EU ETS, which would be to have a price that can actually drive investment towards a low carbon society in the EU and that is the missing part. But uh, let's hope that will uh, come with the last uh, adjustments of the EU GS now. Thank you very much. And now our final speaker, Jorgen Wettestadt, research professor from the Freidhof Nansen Institute, NOR. Thanks. <coughs> Thanks for inviting me. It's an honor to be here, that's for sure. I'm a political scientist, and one of the central debates in political science is on entrepreneurship. And that is, uh, entrepreneurs are actors who exert extraordinary skills and achieve more change than their former roles would imply. 
And I think a small core group in the Commission acted as clever policy entrepreneurs, many of them present here today. And they can correct me and fill me in. I will briefly indicate some of the techniques that they employed. Why then is this topic interesting and important? Well, apart from the flattering dimension, some of them may think that this is some payback for flying me down there. Well, it isn't. It's because of the learning potential. There are lessons to be learned with relevance for other policy areas in the EU. But perhaps particularly important, there are actors around the globe, in China, Mexico, Thailand, Brazil, who are in the process of building carbon markets. What can they learn from this side of the EU ETS history? And this is, of course, a tricky question, in a way, due to time and space. In other words, what was done in the EU ETS was a response to, and it was conditioned by special circumstances at the time. But still, I think there are some general lessons to be learned. Four quick points. First, the very framing of the instrument. Emissions trading combines economic cost-effectiveness and flexibility with environmental steering capacity, with the cap. And highlighting cost-effectiveness when addressing industry and environmental steering when addressing environmental organizations, I think, helped winning actors over. What's the, what's the lesson here? I think perhaps use the unique combination of steering and cost-effectiveness to fine-tune messages and bring aboard different target groups. Second point, alliance building. The Commission, of course, uh, established close contacts with the, the power industry, the key target group, and John can uh, certainly say more about this. But a broader alliance was also carefully forged by, by a steered stakeholder consultation. And this included also the energy-intensive industries, who have nonetheless continued to be a bit on the skeptical side up to, the, to this day. They are exposed to global competition, of course, and have increasingly referred to carbon leakage threats. So a question becomes uh, if these industries could have been included in a better way. I'm just asking the question. A trivial but perhaps still important lesson could be give special attention to vulnerable target groups. Third point has to do with exploiting windows of opportunity. And this has been touched on before, and George was mentioned it in the, his dinner speech also. Political windows tend to open after some sort of economic, political, or ecological crisis. And we know in the global climate regime back in 2001, the, the Bush administration and the US withdrawal from the Kyoto Protocol created such a crisis. And EU leaders and ETS entrepreneurs went on a tour of Europe and used the Kyoto crisis constructively as a central reason to embrace the EU ETS and be being set up as the main instrument to implement Kyoto. What's the general lesson here? Well, be prepared for the unexpected and be ready to turn problems and crises into possibilities. Final point, using tactical retreats. As to the design, the Commission entrepreneurs clearly preferred to start with a rather centralized and auctioning-based design. Reading in and between the lines on green, green paper, for instance. However, due to the newness and the uncertainty related to the emissions trading instrument, a clear majority of governmental and industrial stakeholders preferred a different and decentralized design. And the Commission backed down. 
And one may wonder if a more hardline insistence on an ideal model from the very start on had been carried out, then we would possibly have no ETS at all. And the patients, it paid off because much of the ideal the design was adopted in 2008. And this is why uh, I and others have called the entrepreneurs tortoises, referring to the patience and the steady commitment to incrementally get the ETS design right. And here, I think the lesson could be, getting the ETS design right is a trial and error process which requires patience and technical skill and be ready to take one step back in order to make later advances. Thank you. Thank you very much. We've now heard of uh, a set of fascinating insights into why and how this policy instrument came into being. And clearly, it came from blockage. It was a means to overcome the blockage. The blockage was no taxation instruments, not possible, and therefore, what else could be done? Fascinating account for within the industry, how it experimented to road test what the options were and what the problems would be. Uh, also, the, uh, the role of the Commission as this platform beyond governments, but with governments, with, with industry, with the environmental uh, groups, to, to develop a policy and an instrument, and also in a way to tactically drive this through a very complex decision-making process including the end game when you get to the council and the council only deals with the really tough, difficult issues and how those are overcome and they're overcome in the end in the EU uh, through compromise. Uh, and the question then is, have you got a, 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 an instrument that's sufficiently well designed that can be revisited? Because another feature of European governance is nothing is ever set forever. There's always a possibility of coming back, fine-tuning. And what I heard this morning was a lot of learning, but I also think there clearly was a lot of socialization among the actors. Intense interaction between a key set of actors who developed a way of moving this, uh, a means and way of moving this forward. Before giving... Uh, uh, the floor to the audience, I wonder whether any of the speakers want to either comment on what anyone else said or would you prefer that I opened it to the floor at this stage? But you have a first... Okay, well then I think uh, it's time to open to the floor. We have uh, <coughs> 40 minutes to discuss and again given that we are uh, to focus on why this instrument developed. Um, maybe just to, to add, sure, sure. My name is Benedict von Butler. I'm working for Mercuria Energy, which is a big commodities trading house. But um, what I wanted to add is something from a time when I worked at Evolution Markets, which was a broker back then, and which is to add sort of to the collective memory, um, is that it reminds me a little bit that we're like celebrating a wedding anniversary, but the first kiss was actually much earlier. So, um, and, and this is a little bit, I mean, the trading system started 2005, but pretty much exactly 12 years ago, in May 2003, <coughs> I was involved in, in brokering the very first deal. And I think this is, this is an essential part that, one part is that the framework came to be, which is fantastic, but I think what also deserves credit are the guys who embraced it very early on. 
uh, in 2003. And I just looked at some, some uh, past presentations back then we gave in, in, in 2005 um, uh, with already a price history. And so in, in all of 2003, 420,000 EUAs traded already in 2003, um, which was from May to December, 420,000. I, I just checked. We had the same amount trading um, at 944. So um, about 10 minutes ago, we traded the same amount in, in terms of uh, volume in, in an hour, in, in under two hours. And I think this is fantastic. So there's a lot of liquidity. And already in 2004, we also traded roughly 3 million tons ahead of the official start of the system, which is you know, a quarter of what we see trading on a, on a daily basis today. So I think that deserves a lot of credit. And yesterday, we, had, um, we heard that um, uh, Dan Dudek was very much involved in SO2 trading. And, um, and maybe as an, as an anecdote almost, it's, it's interesting to see that the, the ones that really embraced this early and tried to push it also in Europe um, were, among others, people who used to work in the SO2 trading system. So Andy Ortel, who used to work at NatSource, Dirk, uh, who's also ex-NatSource, um, and... Um, so Andy Ortel, who used to be broker in New York, I used to work as a broker in New York back then. Um, and then we had Garth Edward, who was working at Shell. And so we had a whole bunch of people from the SO2 trading world who said, okay, why don't we do this in Europe? And so we didn't really have any infrastructure. So nobody had a price visibility. So everything has to start with the first deal. And so at that point, and, and the first deal, I mean... This was 50,000 tons, uh, if I recall correctly, it was about 5 euros, and half of it was paid up front in cash, so as to give an incentive. And so Shell was on, the other, on one side, and the other side was actually uh, a Slovakian industrial who said, great, if you pay me money, you know, I'll promise you to deliver something when I get my credits, because I can invest already now. So we, we already had a real example of carbon finance here. Um, also, it was a lawyer's dream because you can imagine that the contract had a lot of what-if clauses in there. So what if the scheme would never come and if they would never receive EUAs and so forth. So, and I think the scheme still is a lawyer's dream in a way. You know? so, um, but, but that is also just something to, to you know, the people who are actually putting money on the table to, to, to trade. Um, I think this is something that, that really distinguishes this maybe also from a couple of other schemes that are coming up right now or trying to get off the ground, is that as these pioneers, you're already two years ahead of legal certainty, um, a little bit put their hands in the fire and said, okay, you know, I'll, I'll just do it. And it's very remarkable. And I looked at the number of trades. So in 2013, we had 17 trades. Um, meanwhile, then in 2003 we had over 600. So, and then, and then really, the, 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 it, it, and then once we came closer to two, so from January 2005 onwards, then it really took off. But, um, but that's just to add a little bit to to how this actually came into into real life. Um, my name is Bryony Worthington and I, I wear many hats, but today I'm, I'm not talking on behalf of my shadow ministerial role. I'm here representing Sandbag, um, which was set up in 2008 as a civil society group to engage with emissions trading policy. And my, my contribution is really just a question, because when I, I think when we look at the ETS, um, I'm really interested to know why it was decided to put the sectors that we did in 
and, and not the other sectors. And it would be great if the people who are involved in those early days discussions could give us some insight into the discussions around about the time about the coverage of the scheme, because I think it's really pertinent to then understanding as it evolves going forward. Thank you. Who answered that question on uh, the sectors? Peter? I, I say yes very cautiously, but um, obviously we were looking for large emitters of CO2, you know, that, that goes without saying. I think the policy choice that had to be made very early on was whether we would do it just with the power sector or whether we would do it with industry sectors. Um, now, all I would say was this um, concept was being developed from DG Environment at the time, um, where we, the core team, were located, but we did have people like Peter Zapfel in the Economic and Finance DG and so on. But the risk would have been that if we had said, oh, well, we'll do this just with the power sector, we might have had this just taken off us and it given to DG Energy. And then I say no more. <laughs> <laughs> but it wouldn't have been the same. We did think, and also from an economic point of view, it's very obvious that the more diverse sectors can be part of it, the stronger economic case you can make. So we did believe we had a very good economic reasons as well. Um, but, you know, I was scared that the pen might be taken out of my hand and given to someone else. Hello, I'm Stieg Schultzett from Point Carbon. Um, one question around the inception of the scheme, um, probably for Peter uh, again, um, and I have to say up front that it's no like finger pointing or scapegoating intended uh, in the question, but just an observation. Uh, so the, the directive itself was negotiated from 2001 to 2003 when we had EU 15, so essentially the, the Western uh, European member states. And then it was implemented in 2005 when the EU had turned into EU 25. So all the countries from Eastern Europe had joined as well. And they had to take the key, or the EUTS as part of the key, right, and implement it straight away. So um, those involved in those negotiations, do you think it would have been uh, very different if it was negotiated as the EU 25 compared to EU 15? Well, to that I would say yes and no. Um, I would say, first of all, that the fact that the EU was heading for a substantial enlargement in 2004 wasn't on the radar of DG Environment in 1998. You know, we weren't thinking, oh my God, we must do this quickly because otherwise it's going to get uh, difficult. We were doing it more within a very tight, tight time scale of the Kyoto Protocol and the wish that the Commission enunciated quite early to try and have a learning by doing phase which, you know, just count, casting back from 2008, we, we sort of gave ourselves three years to learn. So it had to be in place, you know, we, we were under very great time pressure. So it was, I would say, more or less a happy coincidence that the EU was heading for enlargement in 2004. With regards, I did say yes and no. I think the newer member states were all in the council before they actually joined the EU. They were there as observers through 2003. Um, and so I think to some extent they were there when the last, uh, when the ETS directive was signed off. But I would say this, I think 
the learning process for them, in a way, was beginning, and that they would, I think, have been persuaded of the benefits of an emissions trading scheme as well, had we had more time to work with them as extensively as we could work with the 15 founding member states and the European Parliament's composition, which of course reflected member state membership of the EU. So, and I think the proof since then is that we can work uh, with EU 25 and EU 28, as we now have. The market stability reserve being the most recent example of that. So, the case remains strong, however many, many countries there are, and of course the more countries there are, the more economic efficiencies can be gained. So for me, this, is, this would have happened anyway, but it might have, might have taken a bit longer. That's all. Thank you. Stephen Smith from University College London. Um, Peter's highlighted two important initial conditions, um, one being the failure of the um, previous carbon energy tax proposal, um, and the second being the existence of a clear model across the Atlantic in the U.S. Acid Rain Program. One perhaps rather more minor contribution to this um, may be the experience of the precursor UK emissions trading scheme, um, which ran for a few years prior to the introduction of the EU emissions trading scheme, um, which I think again illustrated the workability of carbon emissions trading, um, but I think was also particularly significant in changing the attitude of the UK authorities um, to developments within the EU. Um, and I think that reversed or corrected a situation that had uh, obviously been a major source of opposition to the um, uh, carbon energy tax proposal. I think it is extraordinarily lucky that the um, Commission didn't um, follow the um, the, the lines of development of the, of the UK scheme, and I think particularly Frank Condry has highlighted the importance of simplicity. I think the UK scheme was ultimately undermined to a very significant extent by its complexity, which rendered it vulnerable to subsequent policy changes. But I think as a contribution to changing attitudes, it probably played an important role. So I'm, I'm Jill Duggan. Um, I actually took over the management of the UK emissions trading system, which many of us might consider to be a Mickey Mouse trading system, um, but was useful in a learning process. And it, it ran for about a year before, um, it started in 2002, so about a year before the uh, legislation in Europe was agreed. And uh, much could be learnt on how not to do it from that initial um, stage. Um, I got incredibly nostalgic listening to the panel discuss um, the development of emissions trading and remembering the days when I was responsible for registry development for um, a number of uh, states for, phase, for the EU ETS and also for policy for phase two of the EU ETS. And I used to be followed everywhere by Treasury and what was at that time DTI to make sure I didn't go off message at all and set policy without agreeing it with them first. But I thought what was, came out for me was how some of the compromises in getting the legislation through, in particular free allocation and the national allocation plans done at member state level, were actually incredibly useful in helping to move um, players, actors, towards the next stage. So 
free allocation of the electricity sector, which resulted in windfall profits, which shocked everybody, made it much easier to get the idea of auctioning for the um, electricity sector in there very quickly, perhaps more quickly than otherwise would have happened. With national allocation plans, at that stage, 25 member states went away and wrote their national allocation plans in their own image. And then they looked up and realized that they didn't trust what anybody else had done. And that made it much easier to move towards uh, a sort of centralized, agreed system of, of everybody doing the same thing and agreeing what went in there. And certainly, as far as the UK were concerned at that time, in terms of sectors and what should go in and what should go out, we did take the same sort of pragmatic approach. Where were the big emitters? and what regulations were currently covering them, and did they look effective, and did they look appropriate for emissions trading? And that was the kind of take that we took on it, and then tried to sell into the commission, where we, which was tinkering not with sectors, but with what was included within those sectors. But um, yeah, interesting times. Um, thanks, and, and, and thank you for, for both of the last interventions raising the importance of the UK scheme, because of I think all of us skated over it a little bit. Um, it wasn't the only existing experience. Um, Denmark also, um, also had a system. Um, but um, having participated in the working group that, um, that was set up of maybe, what was it, maybe 20 15, 20 people, something like that, that helped direct the direct, uh, write the directive, um, somewhere between a third and a half were probably British. Um, somebody should tell David Cameron about that when the <laughs> referendum comes around. Um, <clears throat> and, and actually, the UK system, for all that it's easy to point to its, um, it, you know, its, its design quirks and, and legitimately, it was far from a Mickey Mouse effort. And I would, I would say that it was probably, in terms of um, the nuts and bolts design, it was more influential than anything else, the sulfur trading system or anything, because um, the people in the UK had at least been through the process of figuring out what to do or what not to do. I can tell you when some things came up, you know, we'd spend, we'd exhaust all our energy arguing about allocation methodology and then somebody would say, okay, let's talk about registry and we would all fall asleep. And somebody like Olivia Hartridge, who I don't think is with us today, mm. um, basically held all the power in the world because you know, these were the only people who had actually been through this process and figured out what the implications were of making some of these more technical components work. So actually, in its, um, in its quiet way, I think it was a highly influential system. And for all, some of the big-ticket design elements of the, e of the UK ETS didn't survive into the, into the EU one. I think that experience was actually invaluable and that the EU ETS would, I think, look different and probably less robust today if it wasn't for that experience. Uh, Bob Hahn, um, I have the privilege of being a fellow at the Schumann Center working with Bridget and working for Xavier, and I also teach at Oxford, but I wanted to offer a, a comment and a question uh, related to times when I was much younger and Dan Dudek was much younger and we were working on the SO2, what I don't think the words cap and trade had been invented then. So this was around um, 1990. Um, we arguably enjoyed one success, if you believe uh, the work that Danny and others have done with SO2. Um, 10 or 15 years later, um, we may be enjoying another success, depending on how you view it, with the ETS trading scheme. I guess my, 
my first of all, a friendly amendment to, to what Frank said with, uh, about Danny Kahneman's book um, with the equation, uh, what was it, skill and luck? I would sort of, add, in less luck, in less political economy is embedded in luck, I might add skill, luck, and political economy. Um, and we do know something, as this gentleman said, about the politics that leads to the success or, or failure of markets. But I guess my question to the academics in the audience, and I'm sometimes an academic, is how should we see the evolution of market-based mechanisms in this area? And how should we judge whether things are going well or poorly? We have two arguably significant victories, depending on which conference you attend, uh, in the US ETS scheme and the US SO2 scheme. Um, but uh, are we on a road to doing lots more of these things? Or are these dinosaurs are going to be done for very um, select problems? Is the glass half full or is the glass half empty? I just wanted to ask the panel that. Hello, I'm Bill Kite. I'm president of the UK Emissions Trading Group, which was, is a, a body that works with the UK government to advise them on implementation policy issues um, in terms of emissions trading. And I was fairly responsible for a large chunk of the writing of the UK um, emissions trading scheme, and I thank Rob for his kind words about that. I'll agree with Jill as well, it did become a Mickey Mouse scheme. The scheme we des designed in the early days was very simple, and I echo Frank's that, keep it simple, keep it simple stupid. Uh, it failed because politicians wanted it to become complex. They wanted to mix other sectors into it. They wanted to mix other instruments into it. And they, it showed abs that absolute and relative targets cannot be mixed in the same system. So I think we actually taught the EU of what not to do. But we also taught them some of the things that should be done on the practical implementation of that. But in terms of why I think it succeeded in the EU, I think the I've got three recollections of what, of three key things which I think happened. One is there was general agreement right across politicians and industry that climate change was real and something had to be done. There was a very strong signal coming out of the Commission that something was going to be done and therefore it was imperative for business to look for the least worst option and emissions trading did seem to be the least worst option. Uh, and I think that led to the cooperation, particularly between the power industry and the Commission, in working out what was, would be practical and what would actually work. And I think it's this spirit of cooperation and working together to find what is practical, what can work, in uh, a spirit of let's take this forward because we both agree on the final objective. And I think if we can keep that and that sort of thing, if that could go into Paris, we'd get a long way. Hello, thank you. My name is Inge Remming and I'm working for Commerce Bank. I just wanted to add on what Benedict said and one comments in the beginning about the luck and timing. And I think we started uh, doing a pilot project in 2001, uh, basically auctioning carbon credits, and then did the first uh, uh, EUA trade in 2004. 
And I mean, if I just look at the faces back then in the risk committee when we went there and said we wanted to trade CO2, and if I would compare that to what would happen today, and I think one of the key differences was the perception about markets back then and as well about trading uh, and the openness to, uh, let's say, look into those kind of uh, issues. And I think that was a, a key factor as well, luck and timing and the perception about markets. And that is the question. Is the perception about markets still as it is today? And without that, I don't think uh, uh, we would have ever traded uh, in 2003, as uh, Benedict mentioned, or 2004, any carbon credits. Thanks. I'm Dirk Forrester, and I uh, currently head up AITA. Um, and I think the, the two things I wanted to emphasize from this era, I was, as, as Benedict referenced, uh, uh, 10 years ago um, uh, in a different role with a company called NatSource that was, I think, one of the early pioneers on the brokerage side of this. And we were involved in GETS too. We weren't allowed to be in GETS one. I think the power sector had its elbows out. They just wanted it all to themselves. So we tried to get in the door, but on Gets 2, we managed to get a role. And we put uh, a young broker, Garth Edward, on the account. He was the guy trading it from New York at odd hours and learned a lot, um, uh, made a lot of good contacts. Um, and uh, probably for me personally, one of the things that changed in that, we decided we should move Garth to London and help build a business in London. And on the way over, he somehow ended up uh, getting recruited by Shell. So somebody had to take that role. So I, I moved it to that slot and, and moved to London and was involved in some of those early stage developments. And I think the two most important things, as I reflect on it, that I think the ETS accomplished was, first of all, this change in mentality in the business community. When I first was going around trying to get John Scowcross clients to sign up with us and do deals with us, it was like you would be lucky to get a $10,000 or $5,000 uh, or, or, or Euro uh, consulting contract from Enel or something. You know, they might hire you to come in and explain how to set up a trading desk or explain how a contract worked or something like that but they really didn't spend much money. It was not enough to support uh, a carbon uh, brokerage desk at all. Um, then after the, uh, after the wonderful work in getting the directive passed and uh, the Russian ratification, all of a sudden those same guys had budgets of millions to go out and invest properly. They had serious obligations. They would pay what it took to avoid that penalty. And it was, it was an amazing transformation to see every company develop expertise so quickly and to uh, have boardrooms that were familiar with what a forward price curve was on carbon, even though it was on the back of very thin data, as Benedict pointed out. It was a sea change. And I think that that has matured, it exists uh, far more um, than maybe many of us appreciate how, how important that is to corporate planning. Uh, I think a, a, another part of that, and I should uh, pay a debt of gratitude to Andre Marcoux for the role that I now hold that he used to hold in, in building up a professional class of, of businesses that work together through this, the association of AITA um, that I think played an important role. 
The other point, though, I wanted to make is that I think um, far more than just demonstrating how an, a cap-and-trade system can work for carbon, the ETS also gave the whole world a glimpse into it through experience of the CDM, and this hasn't been talked about. I think that was one of the most powerful things it did, was that open access to the market that gave so many people that opportunity. And when I think about the entrepreneurship, and I certainly agree with you about the, Joss and the Peters and Yvonne's entrepreneurship and, and moving this along, the real entrepreneurship was the companies that launched on the aim to raise money to go out and invest in faraway places and bring credits back or uh, those uh, entrepreneurs that took the risk to hire people like me to go and do this. And it is a, a, an amazing thing. It must have been, Josh, for you, kind of like uh, the people that invented the, uh, the internal combustion engine when they first saw the spark that actually make, made things move. Uh, it, it, it was really impressive to see how business responded to it. Thanks. Well, th thank you very much. Um, um, remembering uh, the success factors, uh, I think it's uh, important to note also that one of the main difficulties uh, was also a success factor. And the, the most important difficulty I was then, uh, I think then, in the European Parliament, was that the system was not understood at all. It was very hard to, uh, to grasp the idea, uh, to create a carbon market, to create... Um, uh, a trading system. Uh, it was um, uh, understood, in fact, by very few people. Uh, so in my political group, the socialist group, there was, um, uh, in fact, it was divided in two um, um, well, smaller groups. One was the state socialist, led by France, and the other group was the market socialist, led by Britain. Uh, the British um, uh, Labour Party was very much in favour of the system. Uh, the French were very much against it because they hated the idea uh, that uh, the richer companies, the big companies, could pay to pollute and uh, the poorer people, smaller companies, uh, they would not have the money to pollute. Uh, on the, uh, the market side, we said, well, it's, it's very important. Uh, ETS is something like polluter pays principle. And um, back then, uh, climate change was not very much a topic. Uh, climate change become very much a topic uh, later after Al Gore's inter intervention uh, and his famous um, movie. Then the, the whole uh, political group was um, very much uh, joined in the fight against climate change. But at the first um, uh, discussions in 2002-2003, that was definitely not, not the case. Uh, so um, uh, yesterday it was noted that in the beginning the system was very simple. Uh, but this simple system was very hard to understand. And um, I think it's uh, maybe also the factor that it was not understood uh, that it came true, because um, uh, there was a lot of ideological opposition also against the idea of a market system, against uh, giving uh, the right to pollution to uh, well, companies or people who are more rich than, than other people. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. I would like to highlight a little bit on, on this issue coming from a country 
which has not been known as the, as the driver of the European Union emissions trading scheme. Uh, and I would like to highlight two, two things. I think the first is that we often ignore uh, that the setup of the EU ETS was an historical opportunity because there was a coalition in the end of the day between the CAP camp and the trading camp. And that is especially for the future is, 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 is important. Uh, coming from Germany where uh, environmental policy is essentially based on Prussian police legislation for the last, for the last century and, and probably will, be, will remain to be for, 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 for a couple of time. Uh, but, but anyway, so there was a huge group which was in favor of capping something. Uh, and, and, and the huge challenge and the, the huge innovation was this co coali coalition with the trading camp. And I think you can't explore this coalition um, uh, without uh, uh, reflecting the role of electricity market liberalization at the time. If we wouldn't have been in the face of electricity market liberalization, and, and, and John probably knows the internal debates with all the German champions uh, at this time in the electricity sector, without this perspective that the, old, that the good old times of the monopolies would have been break, uh, broken and, uh, and trading will be an essential element of this new liberalized market, uh, this, this coalition would, would, would have probably not emerged. And, and, and I think that that, that has has been a historical opportunity, and I will highlight this in my, my intervention in the afternoon, the key challenge will be to reinvent the coalition between the cap camp and the trading camp, because after the financial crisis, after all the debates we have, uh, the reputation of markets uh, is, has not increased, let's say, let's put it this way. Uh, and, and, and the key issue is to, to, to highlight again uh, the, uh, the, the huge benefits from responsive mechanisms, which are markets. But anyway, the, the key question is, what is, the, what is the parallel to the spillover of the electricity market liberalization, which to my observation has been one of the key factors which made the ETS in the European Union uh, possible because in, in, many, in many countries and, in, and, in, and within the European Union, we have exactly this separation. You have in the socialists, we have these trading nations, we have these command and control nations, and it is a lot about political traditions and political perceptions on responsive mechanisms. And, and that is, has been one of the success factors during the setup. And is, this is one of the key challenging factors for the future of carbon pricing. Well, thank you. Um, I think that we are not obviously suffering from amnesia, but, we, but some memories uh, at least are uh, uh, a, a bit not so vivid as that they should. So let me be blunt and to uh, make a point on, the, on what happened uh, uh, when the directive arrived at the Parliament. It was almost killed. So it's important to remember that. Suddenly, the directive was being uh, under huge lobby and pressure by several sectors and by several governments that wanted to undermine environmental integrity undermine uh, uh, non-distortion of the competition and undermine cost-effectiveness. Cost so I really think that this was really a science-based 
approach, but it was not um, uh, an in vitro or laboratory production. It's important to uh, uh, make the point of the politics on this. And I think it was vital, since many of you are working on uh, uh, political science, that, in my opinion, this works not only because all of what was said uh, was uh, uh, right, but also because we always said that there was a plan B. It was not about having cap and trade or having nothing. It was about having cap and trade or having taxation. So every time business sector, NGOs, governments approached the parliament with amendments to destroy, undermine the directive, we said, okay, no worries. The day after we will have something to fulfill Kyoto. And this option will be much more strict and much more painful. So every time inside our political groups, inside, inside our own countries, uh, some alternatives to undermine the process appeared, taking the plan B was always very important. And Dorrit Corby knows, Alexander the Rule from the Greens knows that, Chris <coughs> Davis from the Liberals knows that. So I think I'm just making this point, not because I'm very interested in the memories, but because for the future, it's important to take always on board the idea that when we want to convince the others to do something, it's important to uh, uh, tell them that there, there, is, there is always an alternative. But that alternative can be much worse. So I think that having always a plan B, playing the carrot and the stick game, was really important on this uh, process at the political level. Thank you, um, Guy Turner. Um, it's very interesting trying to sort of dredge up my memory about what happened um, to led us to this endpoint. And it's, it's quite easy to forget some of the roads that were, were gone down and accumulated to the collective learning um, that has turned into the UETS. And we've mentioned the, the UK e emissions trading scheme. Um, but at that time, if we look back at the late 1990s, there's, there's two points that stand out for me. One is the concept of voluntary emissions trading schemes, which were percolating around at that time. In Canada, there was the uh, Pollution Emissions Trading Scheme, PERT. There was GERT, the Greenhouse Gas Emissions Trading Scheme. The UK Emissions Trading Scheme failed, not because it was an absolute scheme and tried to merge other schemes. It was because it was voluntary. Participation in it was voluntary. The government spent £150 million buying emission reductions from companies who could cherry-pick their assets. And... In each one of those cases, it is an oxymoron, a voluntary emissions trading scheme. We learned pretty quickly that you can't do things voluntarily. You need a cap, and it has to be legally enforceable. So that was an avenue which was gone down, and someone slammed it into reverse and said, this isn't, this isn't actually going to work. And the other, the other um, I think, source of energy that drove, in particular, the UK government's position at that time in the Blair Brown era was the City of London. Lewis, you were probably around at that time. The Emissions Trading Group has a heavy, had a very strong influence by um, the financial institutions and the UK government seeing the City of London as being a trading hub. If this was going to take off and become a trillion dollar global market, um, that expertise wanted to be, you know, at that point, resided in, in, a, in a source of um, existing talent. So 
uh, you know, we had in the UK an eye on the future and the extent that that influenced UK policy, policy position and our um, uh, interactions with Europe perhaps is, um, is well remembered. Yes, thank you. Uh, Daniel Agostini from the Ener Group. I'm today the head of low carbon policies in the Ener Group uh, worldwide. And uh, back then I was advisor to the Italian government. And uh, I have a lot of remembrances, but I'm going to refrain from uh, bringing them up. But if, if you ask me what made it possible, I think it would, I would say it's the right level of recklessness. I think uh, it was very bold to go forward. We talked about window of opportunity. I think Eva described it correctly. There was tremendous pressure to push this thing, although there was still very, uh, there was lack of clarity on a lot of those aspects. And member states like Italy were quite perplexed. Spain, I think France, a bit less so. Uh, so on one hand, you had the Danish presidency pushing with the European Commission. On the other hand, you had the German delegation sort of saying, hang on a second, let's try to understand what goes on. And it's not by chance that until the end, the first phase was called the pilot phase. And some people kept saying, it's a pilot phase. And other people were saying, no, this is the real thing with real penalties. And so it was that balance between diving into the unknown, but doing it, learning by experience. And you know, uh, I just have to give two examples of how much unknown was there if we look at the criteria for putting down the national allocation plans. I mean, it was just one page, I think, with seven criteria. And the amount of uncertainty that it brought to the market was huge. We had that long extended process where uh, Yoss, Peter, and all the team, uh, uh, Peter and Peter, I'd say, uh, were trying to approve these plans and saying whether they were right or wrong, whether they had to be reformulated. And again, that was a dive in the dark. The other big unknown was data collection. And as they remember, you know, in Italy we were saying, well, you know, we need a law to actually collect data, otherwise we're going to get bogus data. And everybody was looking at us saying, oh, you know, you Italians, you can't get your data right. It turns out that a lot of the other member states that didn't actually put laws in place to collect data actually got bogus data, and we ended up with major overallocation. So again, we were reckless, but at the same time, I think it was the right level because we had review clauses. We had the first phase that closed that first period and separated the impacts of that first learning by doing phase from the subsequent phases. So again, I think what we should learn is that we need the right amount of boldness in going forward, but also we have to pay careful attention to what checks and balances in the reviewing process we put in. And I think this is a very current issue today when we discuss that we've just finished discussing the MSR and the carbon leakage. To what extent we set regulation, we give regulatory stability to business like Enel, but to what extent we also incorporate periodic reviews that actually allow to correct the system. We're going to dive into the carbon leakage debate. You know, how do we set a regime, but at the same time, set a, cor a correct review process? So again, I think what we should learn from is that we need the right level of boldness, but also be very careful to the dynamic picture in time, how it's going to evolve, and what, with what frequency you want to intervene. And I'll just close by just thinking back. I think, uh, again, I, I'm on the board of AITA, and we were in Shanghai with the BPMR, and we were talking with the Chinese, and they were saying, well, our regulation is like four or five pages. We'll just start it off and then correct it as we go forward. And we were smiling, but in the end, maybe you know, the first directive in Europe was also a bit like that. So again, even in their case, the key question is that balance 
between regulatory stability, but at the same time, a learning by doing uh, approach. Thank you. Thank you very much, Matthias Duve. Now with Ecologic Institute, back in the early days of the ETS with Climate Action Network, uh, together with many colleagues around the room. And uh, um, if you just allow a few more, um, I think, added consideration, there were a couple of, so many things that, that resonated with me from what people were saying, and I'll just pick out two. One, I think, was uh, from um, Rob's uh, recollections, the way in which the ETS should be remembered in terms of its framing, I think is quite important. Uh, that indeed, at the time of its inception, it was so clearly part of a larger set of instruments. The, the ECCP process concluded with a conference and report, I think, in, before the summer of 2001, um, and the Renewable Energy Directive was actually adopted, I think, soon thereafter, and the ETS original proposal was published by the Commission alongside the proposal for the Kyoto ratification. So this was always um, embedded in a whole suite of, of other instruments. And I think we, of course, also saw that as being part and parcel of the, the package in 2007 and 2008. So the recollection of it, I think, should take that into account. <laughs> And then um, I really like John Eve's um, um, phrasing of it as a collective exploration process, because I think that really hits the early years, um, uh, the, the nail on the head. Um, and um, certainly, in particular for the, the NGO community that uh, Rob alluded to, I remember very clearly how it was very hard to swallow the fact that even after the adoption of the instrument, and a lot of people having gotten around to the general concept, this uh, legislation as it was adopted didn't have targets. That was the crucial, most important thing from the civil society perspective was, so how much is go this going to do uh, in term, bring in terms of absolute emissions reduction contribution to Kyoto, and we still did not know. And uh, in terms of the, the buy-in from the, the broader civil society community, that was a really hard um, uh, piece. Um, another thing that I remember just anecdotally is also as part of that discovery process, how um, Felix, for example, you know, came and tried to uh, get uh, civil society groups understand a concept of opportunity costs and how all this, you know, you know, what was all that about and how did these windfall <laughs> profits come about? Um, at the same time, I think it was very important and we always appreciated the opportunities for stakeholder engagement that the Commission's processes allowed. So I think the, the consultation that was done under the framework of the European Climate Change Programme in 2001, back again in between for the second report and then in 2007 was uh, quite fundamental. And I think especially the early years of implementation with the national location plans showed how important it was to have some external scrutiny, some uh, folks on the ground in the member states trying to follow up and scrutinize um, what was being put forward. Um, and I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much. Thank you. And now our final speaker to whom I owe an apology because I know that you've had your, <laughs> you've had your name up for a long time. Yeah, but there's an advantage that I cannot be contradicted after this. <laughs> So, uh, my name is Andre Marcoux. I was, at that time, uh, 
the CEO, president and CEO of what was a, a startup to some degree, which was AIDA, grew up and, and very ably, ably uh, led by, by Dirk now. Um, and I remember uh, being Canadian, being somewhat bewildered by, by Brussels. I, one name from the past, Joss, that ought to be name, uh, mentioned here was Charles Nicholson from BP that brought me into AIDA and said, you want to go to Brussels? You want to lead AIDA, but you've never been to Brussels. Uh, so anyway, over the years, I, I tried to understand how, how Brussels works, and I think that has a great amount of importance of what the ETS looks like and how it evolves. But I'd like to go back to why this succeeded to some degree, and I think that we, we went on this high where the Kyoto Protocol and the ETS was created, and then as, as we went into the, the bad economic times, I think you know, maybe the support was not as much there. We seem to be coming back now with the Secretary General's uh, carbon pricing initiative and so on. But I believe firmly that the reason why the ETS succeeded is because it was a coalition, as somebody referred to this, a coalition that brought together people that came out of the Rio process with supporting sustainable development and the market people. This came out, and Dirk will remember this, this came out, AIDA came very much out of an UNCTAD process that was, you know, at that time, Recupero was the chair of the head of UNCTAD. So there's a, there's a lot of, of international support for emission trading. Emission trading was being seen as an international great level leveler of the playing field. The Canadians were, were very gung-ho to do it. There were some very big energy companies supportive of this. BP and Shell were very supportive of this. And you know, to have two companies, which is an existential uh, problem for them, supporting this kind of initiative, I don't think it's a minor, it's a minor thing. But essentially, I think it was based on the success of the SO2 program. And everybody said, okay, guys, we do this. The SO2 program worked, and it worked very well. So this has got to work very well. I think it was a little bit more complicated than that, but that was very much the, uh, the support. The second thing was the simplicity of it. I think that everybody was sold of the fact that, you know, you put a cap and then we get business to do it. It also turned out to be a little bit more complicated than that. But by and large, what I would like to close is the lesson that we're learning, I think that the governance of this thing is very, very important. I come again, again from a Canadian background and the governance in Canada is very, very different from here. But I think that the fact that you have these, these, these periodic reviews and understanding and making a correction, because it is different, it is like the SO2, but it's different from the SO2. And unless we accept that and we continue to improve it, keeping us in business, the policy people, but nevertheless, I think that there is a requirement and a need to continue to understand whether it's an MSR or whether it's, it's carbon leakage or whatever it is, it's an important thing that needs to be reviewed over time. Uh, I'll stop here because I think I'm getting in the way of coffee. Well, I'm going to ask Jos to, to sum up this session, to reflect on the richness of what all of you have said, but to do so without keeping us from coffee for two. Thanks, Birgit, and I will be very short. And uh, thanks for the, for the exciting uh, discussion and comments. Uh, it's impossible to summarize, but I take uh, two, three points, and I mingle in uh, some of the experiences that uh, uh, we lived on, 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 on the first row in the Commission, uh, so to speak. The first is that uh, support of a wide range of stakeholders has been key. I think we all have been saying that in different uh, ways. Of course, the industry, the power sector, but also the manufacturing industry. 
the support by the NGOs, because we were going for a cap. And that was difficult to explain, but the cap was the cap, and the cap would go down. And, and, and that was uh, raising the support from the NGOs, the support of the trading community, the support of the academic community. And these were the basic forces that were feeding the information in the institutions, with yes and no's, but that, that is what happened at the European Parliament, in the Council, in the Member States, uh, as well as in the Commission. The support of the stakeholders um, and the deep involvement in the European Climate Change Programme, I think, was, uh, uh, was the seed on the basis of which uh, the, the project could uh, be uh, uh, carried forward. The second element is the international context. I think that uh, uh, Rob was saying the legitimization of the Kyoto Protocol, Article 17. I think that was perhaps even a more, more, uh, uh, in, uh, more important influence uh, because that was the Kyoto Protocol, that was the UN. Uh, and so if it comes from that level, why would we be against that? And then we were looking for all possible examples, and of course the sulfur trading scheme, the UK scheme, uh, the, the schemes that industry was doing internally, and we hated the voluntary schemes, because we, we never believed that without a, a strict frame uh, you, you could do it. But we were very uh, eager to learn from others, and very cautious, and that's why the first phase was called the learning uh, by doing phase, the, because we knew that things can uh, go wrong, and I think uh, along the way we, uh, uh, we um, uh, exercised that uh, updating and reviewing and, and uh, mending uh, defenses where it was necessary. That brings me to my third and final point. Uh, we have been compromising on design options, and perhaps the, the two most important compromises were the limited auctioning, and also the significant role of the member states, uh, the national allocation plans, it, it got almost out of hand. And um, I, I think these were very important concessions that we had to do, that we could remedy later. Thank you very much. And now we go to the lower lodges, so turn right up the steps, out to the cloister for coffee. Thank all of our speakers and all of you who've intervened this morning. Uh, for what was a very rich discussion on why this policy instrument flew. So I look forward to the rest, excuse me, of the debate this afternoon. Thank you all very much.